0: Welcome to the Scholarly Communications channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Janaki Sunivasan, author of The Political Lives of Information, Information and the Production of Development in India. This book was published in October 2022 by MIT Press, and I want to note that it is available open access. The political lives of information examines how the definition, production, and leveraging of information are shaped by caste, class, and gender, and the implications for development. The research presented here examines the history of the idea of information and its political implications for poverty alleviation. Countering claims that information is naturally and universally empowering. The political lives of information shows how the definition production and leveraging of information are shaped by caste, class and gender. Srinivasan uh, uses the concept of an information order to examine how the meaning and value of information reflect the social relations in which it's embedded and how the power to label some things information and others not is at least as significant as the capacity to subsequently produce access and leverage information. Janaki Sunivasan is associate professor at the International Institute of Information Technology in Bangalore, India. Welcome to the New Books Network. So I would love if you could start the interview by saying a few words about yourself. uh, That is where you were born, where you went to school and how you became interested in information studies.
1: Uh, thank you, Jen. Thanks for the opportunity, first of all, to talk about my book on this forum. Uh, so I was uh, born in Delhi in India uh, and grew up, uh, oddly enough, studying to be a physicist and then uh, an information technologist. And I think it was in the course of doing my master's in information technology that I realized that I was probably more interested in how people use technology rather than actually designing that technology. And that's sort of how I got into uh, uh, studying uh, information technology for development. Uh, And I should add that I have always been interested in how social worlds work uh, in power and in politics, I guess. So it sort of all came together for me. Um, And I got very interested um, in uh, information, uh, in the use of information technology for development in countries like India. Uh, And I'm talking about the early 2000s when... This was um, a really big topic of discussion The you know, questions around digital divide and so on and so forth. So I think that was sort of how I got into this. And then uh, I went went on to get a PhD in information systems from UC Berkeley. Uh, And I mentioned this because I remember um, uh, when I joined Berkeley, there was an installation in the library which said information wants to be free. And they basically had all these books hanging from the roof of the library, sort of flapping around. And the whole point was that we don't need those encasings anymore. And information is going to do such great things for us. So I think it was a combination of my own interest in information technology and development, uh, followed by uh, sort of this immersion in this idea of information that I think uh, uh, came together during my PhD. And I've, I've... sustained that obsession with this idea of information.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. So turning to the book, uh, The Political Lives of Information, could you share with us a little bit about the goals of the book and the information order framework that you've used to situate your work?
1: Absolutely. Um, so uh, I think the beginnings of this book were really that when I look at a field like information Communication Technologies and Development, or what is informally called ICTD, uh, many such initiatives that were leveraging digital technologies for development were based on this underlying idea that information empowers people. Um, And uh, I I was reading a lot about the history of this term information and how it is that, uh, you know, Uh, entities across the political spectrum seem to embrace this idea. So that was one set of ideas I was thinking about. Uh, But at the same time, if you look at the longer history of technological interventions in development, one concern has also been this uh, uh, concern with depoliticization, that you were basically substituting Uh, technology or technical solutions to problems that were fundamentally social, political and structural. Uh, So this idea of depoliticization that runs through development studies um, and this idea of information as um, a game changer or as uh, a development agent, for me sort of came together and it made me want to understand, well, what role is information playing in social change, in projects of development? Is it depoliticizing that entire process, is there a a potential for information to repoliticize that conversation? So uh, I didn't sort of go into this project saying, oh, information is going to depoliticize development. I uh, genuinely wanted to understand, given the range of entities who seem to take up this idea of information, what were the different ways in which people picked up this idea and what really was the consequence of that for social change and development. Um, And it was in this context that I came across the historian Chris Bailey's idea of information order. And he is of course, uh, looking at the 1857 uh, war of independence in India from colonial rule. Uh, And as a historian, he explains that uh, within history at least, the analysis of information systems and cha- channels was always seen uh, as secondary. Uh, they were always consequences of something else and information systems were never the, uh, uh, the core object of analysis. And for him, that was a big gap. And he brings up this idea of information order uh, as a way of looking at different information institutions, channels, actors, etc and to make information important to the analyses of social change that he was carrying out. Um, and that, that that worked for me as well, though I, I pick it up in slightly different ways. Uh, he also brings up this other idea that, of course, the other way in which we think about information slash knowledge is uh, a sort of Foucauldian idea of power knowledge. And his problem with, with that is that those kinds of frameworks tend to treat uh, both power and knowledge in uh, as monoliths, right? So they don't actually look at uh, how localized actors engage with uh, 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 with such knowledge. Uh, and both of these uh, lacuna are the reasons that he comes up with this idea of an information order. And for me, it was important because the way information is being used in the context that I was studying, uh, uh, its social and material roots very often were not looked at. And for me, the information order uh, provided a way in which I could foreground power relations, the social relations within which information is embedded. And that's why uh, I picked up on that. And uh, I think maybe later on, I can say a little bit about how I also went on to modify it. But that was really my reason for uh, uh, using this idea of information orders as a way to foreground the social roots of how information uh, is defined how it circulates uh, within a particular setting.
0: Absolutely, yeah, and it allows for like some different lenses of looking at things that I think we're used to talking about without some of the necessary nuance. Uh, so then, you use that framework in um, examining three case studies uh, throughout the book, and you you describe them and the reasons you chose them in chapter two, so could you share with listeners a little about each of the three cases? I know we'll get more in-depth about them as we go, but um, just to start with a little about each of the three cases and the reasons you included it, um, and if you if you'd like at this point to touch on the methods you used in those cases as well, that would be fantastic.
1: Absolutely, Jen. Uh, So like I mentioned, for me, what was really interesting, and I think part of the one of the major contributions of this book is also the range of actors who picked up on this idea of information. And that is also what guided me to pick the three cases that I did. All of them are fairly... Prominent cases that advocate for the use of information for social change, but they do so in completely different ways. So um, uh, the the, the first case that I talk about in the book is uh, the case of price information use among fishers in Kerala. Uh, and this case really draws on uh, a very prominent uh, economics uh, study uh, by the economist Rob, uh, economist Rob Jensen, who looks at how the use of mobile phones in Kerala in the late 90s uh, allowed for the incomes of fishers as well as their welfare to change. And his argument is that mobile phones allowed for price information of the fish to circulate more efficiently, created a better market, and that's how it improved the welfare uh, of fishers in that region. So this was a very market-based understanding of how information could transform uh, uh, society so that was one case um, and uh, uh, I basically spent uh, uh, five months in Kerala in 2012 and 2016 um, as uh, a participant observer uh, also interviewing people uh, everyone basically on the auction grounds uh, in two locations in Kerala uh, different kinds of fishers different kinds of sellers of fish uh, activists who were involved in local fisher, uh, uh, fisher people's campaigns uh, and so on. So I basically spoke to a wide variety of actors, interviewed them, also observed what was going on in, uh, in the beach markets where fish was being sold. Uh, so that uh, that was one case. The other case was of a non-profit called the Swaminathan Foundation, which set up uh, a digital information kiosks in the southern Indian state of uh, Puducherry or Pondicherry. Uh, and the idea really was that you would have these... Um, Village level computer centers where people would be provided information about various government schemes, entitlement schemes, uh, livelihood opportunities, etc. And that information would then uh, 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 give them opportunities and allow them uh, to bring about changes to uh, their employment and their lives in general. So this was a case of uh, information provisioning by a nonprofit. Uh, and the third uh, was a political campaign by a group called the Mazdoor uh, Kisan Shakti Sangathan, MKSS, which was a collective of peasants and farmers in Rajasthan in Northern India, which uh, campaigned uh, for a right to see government records or a right to information, which was not uh, a right that existed in India. This would be sort of the equivalent of the FOIA in the US. Um, And uh, what I look at are the early campaigns that would eventually contribute to the passage of such a right. And I was looking at the 1980s and the 1990s. Here again, my method was uh, to hang out, with uh, mkss members uh, participate with them in their current campaigns and use that as a way to understand what had happened in the 80s and the 90s and also archival research this was something that i carried out in 2009 i should mention that in the swaminathan uh, uh, foundation case the information village research project uh, also i basically hung out in the villages where these computer centers operated tried to understand uh, who used them, who didn't, what did they use it for. And I also spent some time with the foundation itself looking at their archives of when this project was set up, which was in the 1990s. So in all three cases, I used a combination of observation, interviews and archival uh, research to arrive at what I present uh, in the book. Uh, Oh, uh, and I should mention, uh, the way I frame the book later, and we'll probably come to this in the chapters, is um, uh, one of the ways in which we can see these cases is you can see the Kerala case as one where politics was just denied. The idea really was that information can empower anyone. Uh, So it doesn't really depend on your social location. Uh, It has a value in and of itself, uh, and therefore, politics or power relations are really not part of what you need to consider. The Swaminathan Foundation case was interesting because I uh, I call it politics bracketed, because it wasn't so much denying that power relations existed within the village community. uh, It was more saying that in the information chaos, we don't need to think about politics. We can bracket politics. Politics... Uh, takes place in another arena. Uh, the M case, of course, was an explicitly political campaign. So we see these three cases, one which actively says politics doesn't matter, one which says politics might matter, but we don't really need to think of it when we are thinking about information provision. And a third which says the only way to think about information is politically. So given these three cases, uh, how did information really work in practice in these three cases and what was its relationship with politics is what I set out to explore in, in the following chapters.
0: That's a really fantastic introduction to the cases. And I was, um, well, I was really impressed at how they give three very clear examples of these different ways Um of thinking about information in relation to power relations, so as you mentioned, you get more into them in the following chapters. Chapters three, four, and five, you discuss more of them in detail. So um, the third chapter uh, is is going back to this um, the the price fixing case and. Um, or sorry, that's that's the fourth chapter. So four through six are, are talking about the cases. So starting in in chapter four, looking at this circulation of price information um, and politics as denied. Can you share some of your observations there? And um, the just I was I was really impressed by the extreme quantities of information you saw at play. So I don't know if you can talk a little about about that and just how the volume of information. Um, was such a part of
1: that case. Absolutely. So um, uh, so I, I guess I should say two things. One is that this case uh, was something that, uh, uh, studying this case was something that I undertook in collaboration with two other researchers, Jenna Burrell and Rucha Kumar. Uh, and we essentially... Framed this research as a revisit of Rob Jensen's work. Uh, and our point wasn't so much that mobile phones don't matter or that uh, price information doesn't matter. It was more that, with, you know, in earlier research we had done with agricultural actors uh, in different parts of India uh, and in uh, Uganda, we had basically found that. Somehow, even though economics tells us that price information should really be on the top of what farmers are always asking for, they didn't seem to be asking for it. It didn't seem to be the crucial thing that was driving how they made their decisions or how they conducted their transactions. And this was very curious, right? Because economics is telling us that it should work in that way. But in practice... Uh, I mean, of course, people were buying and selling things at a price, but they weren't necessarily structuring who they sold to or how they sold it to them uh, based solely on price, right? And that is what got reflected in uh, uh, in the research that I carried out in Kerala as well. And one of the first things that I found was, so so, so you have to also sort of picture this, I was in uh, uh, a beach market near uh, Trivandrum in southern Kerala in Viriniam. Um, uh, I was uh, uh, standing on the beach and I was just surrounded by all of these boats that were coming in, fishermen who were, bringing in uh, the fish and lots of people who were selling it there, there were auctions going on and uh, none of it was as tidy as, as the model that was presented to us. Said it should. I couldn't like look at that and say, "Oh, you are a buyer and you are a seller, and you know here's the fish." It, none of it was that simple, right? It was just way more messy. And one of the ways in which it was messy and also very interesting is when you actually walked up to the people who were auctioning these fish, because there was no direct buying and selling. By the way, there there were auctioneers in between. And in the in the chapter in the book, I describe in greater detail what the role of the auctioneer is, etc. But basically, in the simplest uh, way to put it would be that uh, the people bringing in the fish would basically go to an auctioneer who would then uh, uh, set a price on that fish and uh, uh, would make these auction cries and people would respond to them. And that's how the sale of the fish really took place. Now, the interesting thing was how did this auctioneer arrive at that price? Right. He didn't have like a newspaper clipping or something on a blackboard or someone coming and whispering in his ear none of that was happening it just literally seemed to just just come out of the auctioneer right and this was really puzzling to someone who had never been to such an environment before and I ended up talking to a lot of auctioneers about well how how do you decide on the price right and what became very quickly obvious to me is while When we talk about markets, we talk about supply and demand and how that decides prices. It became very quickly obvious to me that the auctioneer was actually taking a lot of other factors into account around the quality of the fish, around how many people were there to buy it. Of course, you could argue that all of this is what eventually constitutes price. But my point here is that it didn't just emerge naturally or automatically in any way, there was a lot of friction. And there was a lot of calculation that went into how they went about making these. So uh, I argue in this chapter that price is produced, it doesn't emerge, right? And it's produced by the auctioneer, it's produced by the person who's selling the fish, uh, who's buying it, etc. So long story short, what all of this may uh, meant was that because there were so many different kinds of actors in that market there were large scale sellers there were small scale sellers there were large scale buyers small scale buyers etc there were um, uh, uh, buying and selling relationships that had uh, uh, that had been maintained over a long time. So people were interested in selling to people who regularly bought from them, even if that meant they were selling it for a slightly different price, etc. So all of these factors together shaped how price was produced. So uh, that is what I go into in more detail in the chapter in terms of what is this range of factors. um, And who among those really cared about price, right? If you're selling like really small quantities of fish, which is what some of the small scale players were doing, they really couldn't afford to bargain too much. If you were a female uh, uh, fish seller, and you knew that you had to leave at 3pm to go back home and take care of your kids, which is what, society expected you to do you couldn't really hold out till you got the optimal price you sold what you could and you moved on right if you had been at sea for five days and you were really tired you were not going to hold out till the best price you got you just sold it at the best possible you could uh, get at that time and leave, right? So all of these factors together shaped price. And it also shaped who was able to use price as a way to uh, uh, structure their transactions. The larger the scale of what you were selling, the more the probability that price mattered to you, the smaller the scale of your operations, price was less likely to be your primary uh, consideration in what you did, uh, so th- this is what i really uh, go into in this chapter the production of price the different actors the power relations how religion plays a role how uh, gender plays a role in who was uh, uh who who played the role of buyer or seller in south kerala and north kerala so uh, and I guess the, the reason I call this politics denied is because all of these uh, uh, aspects of someone's social location, I argue in the chapter, really plays a role in whether or not they can use price information. So even though politics was denied, in practice, uh, the way information circulated or how it was leveraged was very much uh, political. It was very much a result of social relations in that community.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. All of this like very nuanced information brokerage brokeraging is is dependent on these like different, maybe invisible but very present power dynamics. Did you get the sense in talking with any of um, any of the people involved in different roles that they were aware of like the I guess the expertise that they had for factoring all these types of information, or was it more of like, no, this is, this is a simple thing. I just do my job.
1: I think more, more the latter. That's actually an excellent question, right? Like how people think of, uh, and I think I come to this in the last ch- chapter, what people see as their expertise or their labor in talking about information, uh, uh is, is really very fascinating. So I think it was really people just saying, well, I have been here a long time, so I really get the fish here and that's what allows me to quote certain prices. And they would go into sort of a little bit, they'll get a little technical around how they make some of these decisions, but they didn't necessarily see it as uh, a category of skill, right? Uh, Uh, And actually that was only part of their skill. Part of their skill was also just the kind of social networks that they cultivated around themselves. Uh, And I think I say a little bit more about this in the chapter. But uh, as I conclude in this chapter, I think this idea that price is this uh, one data point which somehow combines all of this and you really don't need to know all of this nuance to me was just absolutely not true when i was standing there in that market right all of these other things seemed so important to understand before you understood price so while price in an economic sense might capture all of this for all the people who were working there it was very important to know all of these different components because they produced that price in some sense so uh, I think that, uh, uh, that question about expertise is great. The other, the other thing I also wanted to bring in was, um, besides the actors, the history of this place and uh, a very strong, um, uh, this being Kerala, of course, there was uh, a very explicit uh, culture of collectivization, which really shaped how auctioning worked in this place and even allowed for auctioning to work in the first place, right? So that was also a very important layer of infrastructure for some of these arguments that we are making about how price information circulates. So I think that that was all this, this nuanced understanding of the different actors and who had what bargaining power, I think was also important was also a skill, if you will, that everyone in that market, not even just the auctioneers held. So I think that question of expertise is just uh, so fascinating. And uh, you're absolutely right that it's very, very invisible.
0: Yeah, I think we downplay a lot of our expertise around information. (laughs) Um, So moving on to the next case study, which you get into more in chapter five, uh, you're focusing here on village knowledge centers or VKCs which focus on attending to information poverty and improving the nature and efficacy of interactions within the state. So you note that these weren't designed to be deeply political, but you argue that they become fundamentally constituted by the range of politics operating in the village. Could you talk more about this and the way it serves as an illustration of bracketed politics?
1: Yeah. Uh, So this project is again, super interesting. It, um, uh, the, the, the conception of the project, you could say, uh, starts up in the early 90s in 1992, uh, and 1992, uh, and it comes up when uh, M.S. Swaminathan, who's the scientist who's also often called the father of the Green Revolution uh, in the Indian case, uh, talks about... Uh, the need to understand how information uh, can make uh, other things being equal, how much would new knowledge and new information make an impact on productivity, profitability, and sustainability. Um, And then the Swaminathan Foundation sort of uh, picks up on this idea and over the course of the next uh, six, seven years, it hones this idea of information shops. Uh, And the point here really is that um, uh, villages should not be left behind in the information revolution. And the way to ensure that this doesn't happen is to set up information shops in various uh, villages. If you look at the language of how these information shops are framed, and I get into this in the chapter, um, uh, they, they talk about these information shops which will be managed by educated Um, or unemployed school teachers, students, women of the village, uh, and they will act as information seekers for the village and satisfy the information demands of the village. So information seekers will obtain what they need from among a set of information resource centers using an appropriate communication medium. And basically what they come up with is what they call a hub and spoke model. So basically every village will have uh, this uh, information shop and this information shop will be fed by what is called a, a resource center, which would add value to information that they got off the internet. Uh, and therefore, uh, the, this was also a time when connectivity wasn't a given, right? So all villages might not be connected to the internet. So the idea was that the value addition center, which was the hub uh, uh, and which would be connected to the internet would download all this information uh, about various aspects of people's lives, say agricultural techniques, entitlement schemes, etc., customize it for the villages of Pondicherry and then the information shops would get this information from the hubs and that is what village residents would then uh, buy or seek. Uh, So one very interesting thing running through the entire conception is the way in which information becomes this thing that can be bought and sold, uh, that is transmitted from person to person, that circulates, etc. And earlier on in the book, I talk about this idea of reification, uh, of this way of uh, sort of bounding your experiences into an object, uh, which is what information has lent itself very well to in in Uh, many cases, and I think this case is a very good uh, example where that is the way in which information is talked about. And what I mean by information being, uh, politics being bracketed here is that the people designing the project were very well aware that uh, obviously uh, any village community has various political actors, power relations and layers of power relations uh, uh, which operate in people's everyday lives. But their point was this information shop which was only going to be selling uh, information or providing information, didn't have to do uh, uh, anything with this politics. It could operate uh, in sort of uh, a parallel realm, if you will, right? Um, And what I do in the chapter is look into how this didn't quite work out that way, right? Uh, And what are some of the ways in which it didn't work out that way? So if we... uh, uh, if I talk just about government information information about entitlements from the government, which was one of the... Uh, uh, one of the categories of information that the project identified through its initial surveys, etc. So the project gets set up through funding from the Canadian uh, IDRC in 97 98. Um, and um, uh, initially, uh, it, uh, many of the villages, which are run by these volunteers who are later called knowledge workers, are very enthusiastic about the idea of culling relevant entitlement information for every village and sort of maintaining a database of it and updating it and so on. Uh, So I conducted most of my um, uh, research for this project in one village that I call Kilipet, which was um, a scheduled caste or uh, Dalit village. And I remember speaking to knowledge workers there, the the early knowledge workers of the center who would who would be who, who were also activists and they were very enthusiastic about building such a database and they even went ahead and did that. Uh, now what happened was the trajectory of the overall project the, this project was called the information village research project i should have mentioned that right at the start so ivrp uh, its funding changed over time once the idrc funding um, uh, dried up uh, what happened was that the priorities of the information shops and the project itself also had to shift uh, so to just financially sustain themselves uh one of the roles of these knowledge workers actually became to um, uh, make the centers financially sustainable. So a lot of their energy actually went to finding what they call boundary and strategy partners. And the reason I'm saying all this is that their attention got uh, uh, sidelined from this focus on entitlement. So on the one hand, what was happening was that uh, this entitlement information was no longer being maintained uh, uh, at these uh, chaos. On the other, what was happening? What was also happening is that as these uh, VKCs got. Uh, uh, seen as a part of the village landscape, the local government officials started seeing the knowledge workers at these centers as the people who would authenticate village residents when they applied for certain kinds of entitlement schemes. So you can see how this whole separation of politics and information provision wasn't quite happening because knowledge workers were constantly being called upon by government officials to say, hey, this person applied for this loan, and they say they live in this village, do you verify it? So they became these sort of verifiers of social facts. And this had many ramifications because these knowledge workers themselves lived in the village, right? So there were repercussions to whether they verified or didn't verify an application. And uh, there are quotes that I have in the chapter where they basically, you can see how they are struggling to... um, uh, I mean, there are many layers of logic, right? First of all, they say we live in the same village. Uh, I'm not going to say no to something that they said because I'll get uh, scolded the next day. So that's one line of logic. The other is the government is providing these funds. Who am I to deny any one of them? So I'll just say whatever they want me to say. And then there's also a third uh, layer where they say, but of course, we are not going to give it to dishonest people, which may or may not. uh, I mean, we can have an argument about whether that is right or morally right or not. But the point I'm trying to make here is that the knowledge worker was making all these uh, decisions about who was deserving or not. Uh, And all of these are obviously deeply uh, political uh, acts. Uh, And this is another way in which uh, the center becomes very political. Uh, And then, of course, I also come to some of the the factors that uh, the, the village residents themselves see as crucial to improving their lives. And they really want the center to help those things happen in the village now uh, let me be clear that none of these directly had anything to do with the goals of the center so i'll give you an example uh, identity documents are uh, were when i was doing my research in 2009 and if uh, i look at newspaper articles today i see that not much has changed uh, identity documents are often prerequisites for applying to many of these entitlement schemes and um, uh, Kilipet being uh, an SC or Dalit village uh, meant that many of these, um, uh, many of the people in the village were people who didn't have many of these identity documents. So if I give you one example of a very uh, curious document in uh, which is required in the Pondicherry case called 64 Evidence, 64 being the year that the French left Pondicherry. Pondicherry was a French colony within within India. Um, And uh, 64 evidence was basically an identity document that uh, you are required to have to show that you are a genuine Pondicherry resident. Now, where do documents come from? Uh, They might come from your birth being registered, but of course, most births at this time were home births. So, there were no documents proving that. As someone from the village told me, Um, the Dalit community was also the least likely in those times to have attended school. So you won't have documents from school. Uh, I mean, if you keep adding up like this, what you realize is That this community which was supposed to benefit from many of these schemes was also the community that was the least likely to have the identity documents which were prerequisites for them to apply to these schemes. Now, what did uh, village residents want from the center in all of this? They saw the Swaminathan Foundation and the project as very powerful actors. So, they wanted uh, them to lend them support in petitioning the state to change some of these rules or somehow make it easier for them to get the ID documents. Of course, this was not something the center had promised. But in the residents' imagination of a better future, it was important that the foundation become this political actor that would then help them achieve these kinds of social change. So this was another way in which the center becomes implicated in the political terrain of the village, whether or not it wanted to be. Hence, the bracketing of the politics we see in the chapter didn't quite work out. Uh, So not only is it the cases where uh, politics is just denied, but it can't even be bracketed. That's really how I move on. Uh, uh, That's how the argument moves on in this chapter.
0: Yeah, it's like at every turn, there's a new political nuance that was not imagined for this project
1: um absolutely yeah
0: and the it it also makes my my mind go off on this direction of like the the power of um philanthropy on information networks which is definitely like not the focus of your book but um comes through in um in these cases where money um from a variety of actors really has a political and a powerful role in a way that um, perhaps was not anticipated, but can't be, um, can't be separated out. Um, let's talk about the third case, which you get into more in chapter six, um, looking at right to information advocacy and programming. Uh, you study here an explicitly political campaign around the right to information. So could you just describe more about that case and the ways information was quite intentionally leveraged by workers, activists, and the state?
1: Absolutely.
0: So uh, this is
1: a a very interesting case uh, in one very significant way. I mean, it has lots of interesting nuances, but what I was really interested in was just how information was conceptualized. So in the previous two cases, one thing that I hope came across is that when people spoke about information, they were talking about something that was out there, that was objective, that was factual, right? In this case, what was really happening was uh, that MKSs, uh, the group that I, uh, group of activists that I spoke about. Um, saw information in quite different terms. So uh, in, in a report that they submitted in the uh, late 80s or early 90s, here is how they describe uh, information. Uh, what is the information available that will lead to cha- that will lead to action at grassroots levels? It is obviously the information that conceals a potential for legitimate change. Information provided must allow for a shift in perception to allow the operas to see their oppression in stark terms, to allow them to present it to the rest of society in terms they'll be forced to accept. Uh, This is in the early 90s. Now, let's also, uh, I also wanted to quote just a little bit from uh, someone, of uh, one of the MKSS activists that I spoke to when I was doing my fieldwork. And he says, um, and I translate from the Hindi, we have all been hearing for a long time that there is corruption, that stealing takes place in welfare schemes. But unless you know the specifics, you won't know what it entails or how it is done. Till you see the documents, you don't know. It was when we got hold of the documents that we saw the difference between the story the documents told and the story we were told by welfare recipients. If these false records are taken to the public, what happens? For there is what the documents say and then there is what people's tongues say. So what is really interesting in the MKSS case is that information became this Thing around which people could contest the state. So let me give you a little bit of uh, context at this stage. So M um, uh, K S worked in the northern Indian state of uh, Rajasthan, which um, uh, saw a lot of famines. And partly as a result of that, there were a lot of public work, um, uh, f- famine relief, Uh, work that would take place in the state what that meant is that if there was a famine uh, a work site would be opened up and all uh, able-bodied adults would be uh, 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 would be able to work on that site and the government would pay them to work so basically this was a way of providing work to people at a time when other works such as agricultural work could not take place because of the famine right so this is a very broad strokes uh, description of uh, how famine relief works much more detail in the chapters but what was happening was that people would never get paid for working on these schemes and one of the things one of the ways in which that got operationalized is that each of these work sites had what is called a muster role or a labor role on which their attendance would be kept and such but what the, uh, the the British legacy in India was that we had something called the official secrets act which basically meant that labor role was only accessible and seeable by uh, uh, by bureaucrats so the person who maintained it the bureaucrat who maintained it was only required to show it to his higher-ups not to the people who worked on that site and whose names were actually on the labor roll, And of course, as a consequence of this, what had been happening was that all kinds of names made it to the labor role and uh, The people who actually worked didn't necessarily get paid, didn't get paid for how long they worked, etc. And there are all kinds of nuances to uh, what is the minimum they were required to be paid, what did they eventually end up getting paid, and I get into the detail of these campaigns in the chapter. But I think what is worth keeping in mind in all of this is that, people didn't have access to these documents. And over time, what the MKSS campaigns realized is that unless they had access to these documents, they wouldn't even know what to contest. And long story short, what happens over the course of the next four or five years by 94, 95 is that MKSS starts uh, doing what are called Jansunwais or public hearings. Um, And what they would do is they would um, get copies of these documents, sometimes through a friendly bureaucrat. In some cases, there was a local order which allowed them to get these, uh, uh, get access to these records. Uh, they would, at the public hearings, contrast what these documents said, like that quote mentioned, to what people said. So people would come up and talk about how some of the names on that list Didn't exist. They were names of dead people. They were names of people who worked in other uh, uh, other states, so they could not have been at the famine relief site. There was one particularly strange one where, basically, the paper showed that uh, apparently an animal hostel uh, hospital was built, but it was built on the first floor of a building, which is obviously ridiculous because. Uh, how how were you going to get the animals up there? So th- there were all these kind of ridiculous stories that came out. But what I want to really point out here is that all of this campaigning, all of this political action was arranged around an idea of information, which wasn't so much about information as objective or as fact or as capital T truth. Instead, it was an entry point that allowed for people's versions of what happened to be contrasted with what the state was saying happened. And that then opens up uh, all kinds of pathways to holding the state accountable, et cetera. Or that was the goal anyway. Uh, And what I do in the chapter is go through till 1996 when the first... uh, 40-day right to information uh, sit-in was held in uh, in the town of Biawar in Rajasthan. And really what I try and do here is how this idea of information is malleable and fungible enough that even though this started at famine relief works and with uh, working class uh, residents of villages, Over time, it got the support of uh, uh, middle class um, residents of uh, some of the neighboring towns, everyone had a hook into this conversation right information was a fungible enough word that you could see how it fit into everybody's lives. So that was one of the advantages of this term. I mean, I'll argue later that the ambiguity also has certain costs. But one of the benefits was that the fungibility of the term allowed for everyone to feel that they understood what it meant. But at the same time, they could also frame it slightly differently for it to be relevant to their lives. Right. So this process really shows how information was conceptualized by this campaign why it felt like a good way to take forward this campaign around accountability and transparency and rights of citizens in a state and frame it around this idea of information and of course 1996 was just the uh, was just one campaign india eventually got a right to information only in 2005 and in many ways the act is in great danger in present day india but that is all part of a different story. That's not what I get to in this chapter. But really, I want to uh, I wanted to highlight today also that uh, this is a very different idea of information than the previous two cases that I was talking about.
0: Absolutely, the way um, information is uh, is understood and um, made use of in each case is uh, is quite different. Mm-hmm. So then after presenting these three cases, you compare them in Chapter 7 by asking of each what counted as information, how that was produced, and how that was leveraged, um, which I think we've, we've touched on a bit in, in talking about each of them. And then you put this into dialogue with Bailey's idea of an information order. And I think this is where, as you referenced at the start of our conversation, you um, developed on, on his conception of information order a little bit. Um, could could you share some of the conclusions that you came to from that analysis and some of the ways that you shifted his information order?
1: Absolutely. So uh, uh, there are two or three contributions that I see. Uh, one is, uh, of course, I should say that what the what Chapter 7 does and what the idea of information order allowed me to do was instead of seeing information as this thing that just circulated and had value and had certain attributes or properties, um, by thinking of it in terms of an information order, I was able to bring in all of these different actors that we have been discussing, um, their priorities, uh, how power operated, etc. And what is it that really gave information value in their particular lives right rather than seeing information itself as somehow uh, intrinsically valuable and equally valuable to everyone so uh, i really have uh, the information order uh, framework to thank for being able to look at uh, uh, look at the production and leveraging of information in this way Uh, That said, uh, I think uh, uh, given the very different context in which Bailey used this idea and I do, I think uh, there are a couple of things I wanted to point out here. Uh, One is uh, that uh, uh, I try and pay attention to how uh, the information order worked in theory and in practice. And I think this is especially interesting in the MKSS case where I point to how um, uh, the minimum wage um, uh, 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 minimum wage act was challenged uh, and uh, I think the details of this are more in the chapter but the point really is that sometimes the law would change but it didn't really mean anything for how things worked on the ground because they continue to work the same way. So the, the court basically said that you do have to pay a certain wage but uh, the local council of Panchayat did not pay that wage and that was what a lot of the campaigns became about. But um, uh, I think there's this distinction between how uh, rules uh, rules in an information infrastructure um, are supposed to operate, but how they actually operate on the ground. So this difference between concept, uh, conception and practice is one thing that I think I bring to the conversation. Uh, The other thing that I bring, uh, and I think this is very much uh, because of the times I'm doing this in. Now, Bailey was uh, talking about information in 1857, uh, and I don't think people talked about information necessarily in the same way at that time in whatever language. Um, So in a sense, it's him taking his framework and lens to look at a time when the people of that time probably were not using the same language. But I'm applying it to today's time where, where of course, everybody uses the word information all the time. And we say we live in a Information age, we have gone through an information revolution, and I think relatedly similar claims around data, etc. Right. And what I try and show in this chapter and the next is also how this very rhetoric around information needs to be part of how we think of an information order. So, how an information order operates, how it is shaped by a social order, how the information order shapes a social order all of these are threaded through also by our ideas about information. So one of the things I argue and I contribute to this idea of an, uh, to this heuristic of an information order, I think is that ideas about information are also part of an information order, not just the information channels, the agents of information, et cetera, which Bailey talks about. Uh, uh, So I I think those are a couple of contributions. And the third is, uh, I think, the idea of information order, the the lens allows us to think about politics. Uh, but I think we need to get more granular. And what I see through my cases is that politics itself is of so many different kinds. There are so many types of politics. right? So this is not about the information order itself but I think using the information order allows me to see that there are so many different types of politics and I've been pushing back against this idea of reifying information in the whole book so I shouldn't be reifying politics and uh, that is what the the next chapter goes on to but I think those are some of the ways in which I try to extend this idea of information order for the kind of cases that I'm looking at.
0: Definitely. And I think that, um, those, um, allow us to, as, as you have then used the information order concept in ways that I'm sure Bailey never, um, imagined possible. I'm sure he never imagined the the time and place that we are in. Um, I think that really paves a way for others to, um, use this as a, a mechanism for analysis. So then uh, in the final chapter, you, you've you arrived at this realization about the use of the term information and uh, the power dynamics of information, the nuance that's really important here. And this also leads you to suggest some areas for further research. I would love if you could share some of those ideas that come up in the last chapter.
1: Absolutely. Uh,
0: So I think uh,
1: I spent some time in the last chapter looking at these different types of politics, and I'm basically pointing to the idea that, of course, uh, there are things like uh, explicit political campaigns, which are what would fall under the category of organized politics. But, of course, uh, there's also this idea of politics of stealth, and we see this a lot, especially in the Pondicherry case, for example, where people don't necessarily want to take their demands through explicit political campaigns, but they've figured out ways in which they can make claims on different actors and also the state, right? So I go a little bit into that. And I also touch on this idea of how any, uh, in any of the cases that I look at uh, in any such initiative, uh, there are multiple processes going on. So you are thinking in terms of abstract ideas like information, which automatically disembeds uh, uh, the the circulation of information from the sites at which you're talking about it. But then when you have to put it in practice, you have to sort of recontextualize it. Uh, And uh, I make the point that whenever you have to recontextualize something you need the people associated with the project to be able to do that and i wonder if that creates new centers of power and this would look different in the three cases and the, the, the chapter sort of goes into that but uh that is one one thought that i was left with uh in terms of uh you know areas of research that uh, 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 that probably can come out of uh, uh, out of my work. Uh, one I think Jen you already pointed to is uh, I, I don't really get into the labor that is performed by the various actors that I'm talking about, whether it's the auctioneer or the knowledge workers. Uh, because when the conversation is about information, And information is itself seen to have this value and agency and it's supposed to lead to certain consequences. You don't really think about who is handling this information. And if you think about information as something that is just transmitted from person to person, you don't really think about the person who's doing the transmission as doing any labor. But what I saw in every instance is that, there was a lot of skill and expertise involved in how this thing that we call information was passed from person to person, was transformed, was leveraged, any of those things that I've been talking about. So I think the question of information labor and expertise is one that I think needs a lot of uh, work and it can come up in uh, both places where you explicitly call it information workers. But I think uh, there are many people who are called other things who are probably also performing this labor that needs looking at. Uh, I also touch on this idea, which I've looked at elsewhere as well, uh, of information determinism. Uh, So while many of us who study STS might be familiar with this idea of technological determinism, so Um, this idea that technology leads to certain kinds of outcomes. And there have been so many critiques of that. And I think over time we have learned how to identify determinism and also maybe to avoid it. But I think information determinism is a much more insidious creature in a way, uh, because it intuitively... uh, 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 feels right to us. When someone says information empowers, I think uh, we would be much more amenable to going along than if someone says nuclear plants or, uh, I don't know, mobile phones are going to uh, lead to world peace, right? So information determinism is something that we need to, I think, be very, very careful of because it, again, shifts agency away from states, other entities, from different kinds of actors and puts all all agency into information. And I think that's problematic for many, many reasons. Um, and also, I think the, the the larger point of which I uh, arrive at by the end of the book is also that this very idea of information as something that sits in certain repositories or people's heads or wherever is actually problematic, right? We need to learn to think about information as something that is distributed in people's thinking rather than, and spread among people rather than individually held by particular individuals or repositories. And this is something I'm still working through, but I think uh, that is something we need to also um, pay attention to. What do we mean when we mean information? And I should just add one thing. Uh, I should have maybe said this when I was talking about Bailey. Uh, Bailey sees information as something that is low level enough that everybody agrees with it, right? And that's something that I push back at in various chapters because you realize that whether you call it information, these days we are calling it data, there is very little that is low level enough that everyone agrees with it. Uh, Lisa Gittelman has this great book called Raw Data is an Oxymoron. uh, And I think that's absolutely true, right? And uh, I think there's a tendency to want something that's low level enough that it's right and objective and correct. But What is that thing? I'm not sure uh, it exists. Uh, And of course, this has interesting, uh, uh, you know, consequences for conversations around misinformation, etc. If you don't have a way of distinguishing between misinformation and information, where are we at? And I think those are complicated questions. But I think uh, uh, we need to rethink how we... uh, uh, what we see as information, what we mean by objective information, etc. Because before we can even get into that debate, so I also wanted to just flag that.
0: Absolutely, those are so many exciting directions for um, for future projects, um, and we're just about at the end of our time here. But before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you are working on now and whether it emerges from any of these ideas um, in the conclusion of your book or if you're working on something completely new and different.
1: Absolutely, I think a bit of both. I think uh, what I got out of this project uh, is that uh, there are certain kinds of people and practices and artifacts that become invisible when we start focusing on digital technologies and information. So I have been quite keen to make Uh, these people and practices and artifacts visible in ways that are meaningful to them Uh, and I think a couple of projects that I work on do focus on that so in that way it's connected to this project. Um, I've been doing a lot of work on the platform economy so the ubers and uh, you know door dashes of the world and i'm part of what is called the fair work uh, network which is a global network that uh, works in over 30 countries now we bring out uh ratings of platform companies and use that as a way to pressure and improve working conditions of uh, platform labor. So that's something that I've been uh, quite involved in as action research, but also uh, there are uh, uh, theoretical possibilities there that I explore as well. Uh, And staying on this idea of labor, I've also been very interested in uh, questions around automation, the politics of automation. So I'm part of a project called Humanizing Automation, where we are looking at various work scenarios and work sites to try and understand how our decisions about what part of that uh, requires automation are made, right? Because very often we hear that the most tedious, lowest skilled, uh, repeatable tasks are what are automated, but who makes decisions about what is tedious and what is low skilled. And that's where the politics comes in. So that's another project uh, that I'm interested in. Uh, And of course, like I think, Everybody today is also thinking a little bit about privacy and AI and bias. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm also part of that uh, gang. So I also do that kind of work. But these are basically the directions in which uh, I'm currently exploring ideas.
0: Fantastic. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time today. Once again, my guest today is Janaki Srinivasan, author of The Political Lives of Information from MIT Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you are listening to the Scholarly Communications channel of the New Books Network.